So how do you define wealth? Is it a robust retirement plan? A lot of money in your bank account? Maybe it's a six months emergency fund. The ability to live with no regard for what you purchase? Is wealth the accumulation of physical assets? Maybe it's the accumulation of digital assets. What do you need to be considered rich? How we define wealth will dictate what we invest in. How we define wealth will dictate what we invest in. Where we invest our time, our talent, and how we invest our treasure. And that is what we will study today as we look at the second letter in the first vision of Revelation. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading 8 through 11 as we study our series on hopeful. And we, we titled this hopeful because we're full of hope. As Christians, we are full of hope. John is writing to a, a group of people that are in the midst of persecution they're under the reign of Domitian, who was enforcing the imperial cult. And if you weren't willing to worship the emperor, you were cast out. And so he's writing to these people, and God has commissioned him to write to, give, to remind them of the hope. The hope that they have in Christ. And so we looked at the introduction, and in, even in the introduction we see that Christ is sovereign. That Christ gets the final victory. And then he opens us up to this first vision. There's going to be four visions. We're in the first vision. And in these visions, he's writing a letter to different churches. So seven different churches will receive seven different letters, all of encouragement about their situation, but also these letters can be applied to every single church throughout the history of the church. So last week we looked at the church in Ephesus that had solid doctrine, that stayed true to the doctrine, but yet they had begun to lose their love for God. And so he was reminding them to stir up, to, to keep ablaze this love that they had for God. The second letter and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we've got this letter to the church of Smyrna, and Smyrna is one of two churches where he doesn't define their weaknesses. He writes to them and he says, I know the issues that you've been having, but he doesn't give them their weaknesses. These two churches are the, the two churches that are suffering the most out of the seven. And we see from this that 
In the midst of persecution, God uses that to refine us, to develop our character. We see this still to this day. In areas of high persecution, you have a church that holds tight to doctrine and holds tight to the love that they have for Christ. It is easy for the church in America to begin to drift. It is easy as American Christians to kind of become comfortably numb to God. We lose our dependency on God. We think we are very independent. And so instead of being dependent on Christ, we start to get lost in the comfort of all that we have. I'm not saying that we should pray for persecution, but we should recognize this as a weakness that we tend to have. And recognizing that weakness, we can, fire, we can fan the flames of dependency on Christ again. So they were persecuted, and through those trials, God used that to refine them. Smyrna was a city that was destroyed in 600 B.C. That's before Christ. John's writing 90 years after Christ. So clearly there was a time when they were built back. In about 334, Alexander the Great commissioned Smyrna to be rebuilt. So they were a city that was once dead and now is alive again. They were built as a port city. They became very wealthy. They were in competition with Ephesus to be the first city or the, the greatest city in Asia, the, one of the second most powerful cities in all of Rome. That's the competition between Ephesus and Smyrna. As a part of a propaganda campaign, Smyrna started to print coins that said or read, Smyrna, first city in Asia. Just makes me laugh every time I think about that. Could you imagine if Flagstaff was like, we're going to print our own coins and we're going to print them out Flagstaff. First city, not just in Arizona, but in all of the United States. They had a lot of pride in their city. In order to, to start printing off coinage for this, you know, that, that takes some city pride. They had a love for their city. It was wealthy it was powerful, and it was known for its religiosity. In 26 AD, it won a contest to build a temple to Tiberius, the Caesar of the time. And that helped pave the way for it being one of the most influential imperial cult cities. So it was a city that, that was religious. It, it would take pride in its religiosity, and not just in its religiosity, but in its imperial cult religiosity. So they took pride in the worship of Caesar. Now, if you remember, Domitian was pushing this imperial cult, the emperor cult. He was pushing it, saying, if you don't worship me, then you're an outcast. So what they would do, the, the city that took pride in its worship of the emperor, of Caesar, what they would do is every year you had to go to the imperial cult temple. 
and you had to make a sacrifice and renew your pledge of allegiance to the emperor and renew your worship of the emperor. And upon doing that, you would get a certificate. You would get your papers that would give you the privilege to participate in the market. Without these papers, you could try to sneak into the market. You could try to partake in the marketplace. But if at any point someone called you out, asked to see your papers, and you couldn't supply, you were cast out of the marketplace and were no longer allowed back in till you went to the temple and worshipped Caesar. So they were a city of religious zeal. In fact, so much so that they had a mall of temples. So to build this fame of their imperial cult, they built a temple with a mall of temples with one side was a temple to Zeus, the other side was a temple to Sibyl, and it was connected by a street of gold. And in between on this street of gold were temples built to various gods and goddesses. It was famous for their religiosity. It was also famous for its beauty. They had the crown of Smyrna, which uh, had white buildings and beautiful flowers terraced around the port city. It was known for being a beautiful city. So the people of Smyrna took great pride in their city. And the epitome of their pride was the imperial cult. This is a mixing of politics and religion. In our country, we've been taught to be adverse to politics and religion. Our founding fathers saw the problem, so they wrote it into our Constitution. But politics and religion often go hand in hand. Because politics and the majority of religions out there are all about power and control. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot, there are some, maybe not a lot, but there are some politicians that get into politics because they care. But for the most part, politics and religion are all about power How much power can we accumulate and control? How can we control the masses? But there's another interesting part of religion. Almost every religion recognizes that there is something wrong with humanity. There is something wrong with humanity. In fact, politics plays in on this too. Recognizing that there are problems And the cure for politics is, well, more government, more governance, more authority, more control. The cure for the religious, more control. If you would only obey the religious code, we wouldn't have a problem anymore. You see how the two go hand in hand, both recognize a problem with humanity and both offer themselves as the solution. 
But Christianity is founded on different principles. Too often, the church has drank from the same cup of politics and religion, vying for power, vying for control. But it was founded on something entirely different, not that we are the solution, but the solution is the gospel. Our church is not the solution to the world's problems. For a while, uh, maybe about a decade ago, there was this big saying that the church is the last great hope for humanity. And, And you heard a lot of people in churches saying this over and over again. The church is the last great hope for humanity, and I think they're wrong. Interesting to preach on a Sunday where uh, we're talking about maybe hiring on another pastor, right? They're wrong, though. The church is not the greatest hope for humanity. It's the gospel. And if we lose sight of that, then we're no better than any other religion. What we have going on here can only be because of the gospel. The transformation we see in the church can only be because of the gospel. The unity we have in the church can only be because of the gospel. If we lose sight of the gospel, then we're just another religion vying for power and control. We have to hold tight to the gospel. So the church, or so Smyrna was full of religion, full of people vying for power and control, and it was full of politics, people vying for power and control. For the church in Smyrna, this meant there were a lot of people that were trying to force them to worship something that God had called them not to. It was going to be a wall that was coming to crush them. So to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and the last, just like, the, just like in the letter to Ephesus, this introduction pulls an aspect of Christ found in the introduction to the vision that is relevant to the unique situation at Smyrna. Smyrna thought they were the first They had it on their coins, but Christ is declaring he is the true first, not Smyrna. This is also a reference to the sovereignty of Christ. First and last means he is also here for everything in between. Now, sovereignty doesn't mean complete control, but complete authority. I always like to use the uh, example of my house. You know, uh, I... I am the sovereign over my house. Now, does that mean I completely control my kids? Oh, man, clearly I don't control my kids. But I do have final authority over my kids. So I might not completely control everything my kids think, but I do have authority to discipline them when they think wrongly. So he has complete sovereignty 
For the church in Smyrna, that was under incredible persecution, this was a comfort. That God had complete sovereignty, that he had the final authority over their life. So the first and the last, he who died, who died and came to life. Once again, this is found in the introduction and is relevant to Smyrna, the city that was destroyed but is flourishing now. The point is that though the city might kill, though the city claims to come back to life, Christ is the one who has sovereignty, authority over death and life. Christ is the one who, is, who has true life. Though the people of Smyrna might kill the Christians, Christ is the one who can give true life to them. So we have a tendency to read our culture into Scripture. And I think this is a great place where we can kind of see that because as fundamental dispensationalists, uh, we have a background of, of uh, certain eschatology, a certain reading of how the end times are going to go. And that certain reading is that uh, Jesus will, will take the church, what we call the rapture, and then there will be the seven years of tribulation. And we often think, and we comfort one another with these words of, before it gets really bad, Jesus will rapture the church. Well, we're reading our culture into that because we live in a, and I would say, a privileged situation as Christians. Before it gets bad, that didn't have a whole lot of, that would have just wouldn't make sense to the church in Smyrna. Before, oh, don't worry. I know you're being tortured right now, but don't worry. Before it gets really bad, Christ is going to come back. Just think about saying that to someone in North Korea who claims, who professes to be a Christian, and because he professed to be a Christian, he watched as each one of his family members was killed in front of him. And then you walk into the room and you say, oh, don't worry, buddy. Before it gets bad, Christ is going to come back. He's going to say, what are you talking? This is bad. I'm living in it bad right now. So although I believe in that eschatology, in that timeline of the end times, we can expect things to get bad before Christ's return. We shouldn't go around saying, oh, don't worry, before it gets bad, Christ is going to return. We should expect and we should prepare ourselves for it getting bad. For the majority of Christian history and for the majority of Christians around the world to this day, it's bad. We live in a place of privilege, but we should not expect for America to always be a place of privilege for Christians. Prepare yourself, because it will get bad. So, he who died and came to life, this, this idea that Jesus is the, uh, the sovereign and has authority over life, we should find comfort in. The people of Smyrna also found comfort in. For the people in Smyrna, the point is Jesus has the final victory. It was already bad for them. But they knew in the end, when all is said and done, Jesus has the victory. A suffering church like Smyrna needed the assurance that their ultimate future was already secure, even though their present lives were distressing. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those. So we've got here three distinct things that he knows, and we talked a little bit last week about this term I know, or know is oida, 
There's a couple terms for knowledge in the Greek. Oida means to have absolute knowledge. So it's not like Jesus has heard about their suffering and can now empathize with them. He knows it. He knows absolutely what's going on. In fact, he knows it better than those who are in the midst of the suffering right there. Tribulation means to be crushed underfoot. It's not just to have pain. It's not just to have problems. But there is a group of people in Smyrna that are actively crushing the Christians. Who are act- their, at their goal, their active goal, is to crush the Christians so that they no longer exist. There is a group in Smyrna that want to make it so that Christianity is gone. We can still see this all over the world today. There is, all over the world, there are cities where there are people actively trying to destroy the church. And even in America today, there are people who are actively trying to destroy the church. They might not have the same political power as those in Smyrna, but they are still trying to do it. So, there's tribulation. They're being crushed, and there's also Poverty. Now, this, is, this speaks of being poverty-stricken, not just poor, not just lacking wealth, but on the brink of starvation, poor. This is kind of a difficult concept for us to grasp, once again, as Americans. Uh, uh, growing up, we were considered to be under the poverty line. So my family was considered to be poor. We got free lunch at school, uh, you know, I got, thankfully, I, my mom had siblings who had older kids, and so, you know, I had hand-me-downs that went from, like, cousin to cousin to my oldest brother to my other old brother to me. So by the time I got this clothes, it would be, like, kind of paper thin. Like, sometimes you could kind of see through the clothes, and it's like, so, so we, were, we were considered poor, but... I always had clothes to wear. In fact, I stayed warm all winter long. I always had food to eat. I, I knew that I would have a dinner that night. So when we think of poor, we think of people that can't afford new things. But that's not what this term means here. This term means that they are so impoverished They are on the brink of starving to death. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They can't afford even second-hand clothes. So they couldn't afford what we take for granted today. So in Smyrna, the city took pride in their religious imperial cult. and We already talked about how they could get kicked out of the marketplace, if they weren't willing to worship the emperor. And this is how the opposition was crushing them. This is how the opposition thought the best strategy to kill the church was. We will kick them out of the marketplace. They will begin to starve. And you know what? Even if they don't renounce God, at least they'll be dead. And that was the strategy for taking out the church. So they were impoverished. And then he says, but you 
are rich. So although you're living in poverty, you're rich. So the poverty that John spoke of was what we typically think of as poverty, someone who lacks material resources. But the rich that he's talking about is not what we typically think of. They are spiritually rich, meaning they have matured in the grace of God. God has lavished grace upon them, and they are maturing in that grace. For this reason, they have learned to be content in any circumstance. Because although they are impoverished, they are content because they have learned to be content through God's grace. How about you? Are you content? When your bank account begins to dwindle? When the stock market doesn't act like you hope it would act? And you see your retirement plan shrinking? Does it stir up anxiety? So we are a wealthy nation. Yet, look around. Do you see content people? We see suicide, drug use, and all sorts of other methods to numb the pain we feel. It doesn't take much to look around in this country and see that although we are materially wealthy, we are spiritually impoverished. The two do not go hand in hand. In fact, God uses trials to grow us spiritually. That is why we're told to consider it a joy when you face trials, because we know God will use that trial to make us spiritually rich. So how do you define wealth? How do you define poverty? Are you accumulating material wealth but spiritually impoverished? You can be poor materially and still be spiritually wealthy. What are you investing in? What are you investing? Is it material? Is it eternal? So he knows their tribulation, their poverty, and the slander of those who say that they are facing that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the slander here is uh, those it's by those who are saying they're Jews. So what's happening here is that there are a group of Jews that say we're Jews, and what what's going on is the Jews everyone had in Rome had to worship the emperor except for one group. The Jews. The Jews got a pass. They could still worship Yahweh at their temple in Jerusalem. They didn't have to get a certificate that said they reaffirmed their worship of the emperor. They could get away with it. Now, first century Christians were mainly made up of Jews. And so here you have, and I think it's important for us to make this distinction because this piece of scripture has been used to justify persecution of Jews over the years. And that's not okay. That's not right. 
So here you have a group of Jews that are attacking another group of Jews. Jews and Gentiles. So what's happening here is that these group of Jews that are claiming to, claiming to be uh, the true Jews, they're seeing a lot of other Jews converting to Christianity. And they don't like that. They don't like that, that their power and their influence and their control over people is diminishing. And so what do they do? They go to the political party in Rome and they say, hey, those guys over there, they're not true Jews. They don't worship like we worship. They don't hold the commandments like we hold. They don't meet uh, synagogue with us. They're not real Jews. They're something else. And so the, the one group of Jews started persecuting the other group of Jews that are Christ followers. This is most evident with John's own disciple, Polycarp, who the Jews of Smyrna complained to the Roman authorities about, his unwillingness to worship the emperor, and after being sentenced to death, it was the Jews who brought wood for his burning. So these Jews are slandering the Christians, saying they're not really Jews. They're not really followers of Yahweh. They're something completely different, and they're despicable. Rome, get them. And what has happened with the Jews in, in Smyrna is that they've partnered together with Rome. A second temple Jew before 70 AD would have been absolutely floored by that. But that's what's happening in Smyrna. So they say they are Jews, and then he contrasts that, and he says, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, he's not saying that all Jews are a synagogue of Satan. What he's saying is that these particular Jews in Smyrna, because they have, they have partnered together with Rome to persecute the church, have become a synagogue of Satan. Satan simply means an adversary of God. And so we'll see both in Satan and, de and the devil, both mean that they are the adversary, that they are opposing God. And so what's happened here is God has done a new thing through Christ, and God has developed the church, and what has the synagogue in Smyrna done? They've opposed what God is doing. So not only have they partnered with Rome, but he's saying that they're partnering with the, uh, with the adversary himself. He's saying that they have partnered together with Satan to crush what God is doing. That's what he's getting at here. So they've partnered together with Rome, they've partnered together with Satan to crush the church. They are God's adversary. And then he goes on to say, and he gives them encouragement, do not fear what you're about to suffer. He lets them know that they are going to suffer. He doesn't say, do not fear because you won't suffer. Do not fear because your retirement is going to remain intact. Do not fear because you'll get to go into the marketplace and you'll live a comfortable life. God does not promise comfort for Christians. There is a movement in the American church that says God promises comfort. God, God, that God's main goal is to make you happy. 
That's not what following Christ is about. Following Christ is not about receiving material blessings. In fact, he says kind of the opposite here. You are about to suffer. You will suffer. And then he's going to describe the suffering. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Now there's a lot of debate about what this ten days means. Uh, Some people think it's a literal ten days. Some people think that it's... uh, uh, Each year represents a different emperor that has uh, troubled the Christians. Uh, I think we could boil it down simply to for a time period. And the point is, it is a limited time period. That the suffering won't last for eternity. But that for a time, Christians will suffer. So they will have tribulation for a time. For a time, the opposition, the adversary, will begin to crush them under his foot. And why is he crushing them under his foot? To test them. Now, there's a little bit of a debate here, too, on who's doing the testing, and some think it's God that's doing the testing. I would argue the one doing the testing is the adversary, is Satan, the devil. That's the one doing the testing. And why is he testing them? To try to pull them away. He wants to crush the church. He's trying to crush the church. And so he's testing to see how he can crush the church. That's what the adversary is doing. Trying to crush the church. So he's testing them for, t- for a limited time to try to crush the church. And then he gives this encouragement to be faithful unto death. Those are scary words. Be faithful unto death. For us, we need to be faithful in our life. Sometimes it's easy to think about the martyrs and to think, you know, if they came in here, guns a-blazing, asking, do you believe in Christ? And I knew I was going to get shot, I could say yes. And they'd shoot me and it would be done. And we talk about how we might die for Christ, and yet the question we might have is, do you live for Christ? You say you would die for Christ, but how do you live for Him today? You say you'd die for Christ, but do you treat your wife like Christ treats the church? Like Christ has called you to treat your wife? You say you would die for Christ, but do you worship? Do you invest your time, talent, and treasure the way Christ has called you to? You say you would die for Christ, but do you live for Christ? So he says, be faithful, meaning remain true unto death. And he gives them this encouragement, and I will give you the crown of life. Remain true, faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is simply a reference to salvation. Even if the end result is trouble, of trouble is death, 
like it was for Polycarp, we can remain faithful because we receive the crown of life. The crown was given to those who were victorious. Essentially, he's saying, if you remain faithful, you will be seen by God as victorious. At the end, you will be in front of God as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So remain faithful and you will receive the crown of life. You will receive the prize. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is the judgment seat of Christ. So at the end, after all is said and done, every single human that ever existed will stand before God and be judged. Those who conquer are simply those who are found in Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you have come to the moment in your life where you have recognized that you have rebelled against God for some reason, at some point in your life you shook your fist at God and you said, forget you God, I want to do things my way. And God says, okay. Go do things your way. And the result is death and slavery to sin. Every religion recognizes, and every politician, and every government recognizes there's a problem with humanity. And Christians are the only ones that say, yes, there's a problem with humanity, and it's a heart problem, and the only way to solve that problem is by recognizing that when we rebelled against God, we became slaves to sin. And the only way to be free from sin is to say, I trust the work of Christ. Because we became slaves to sin, and we earned death, but God, being so rich in his love for us, came and he paid the price. He said, all you have to do is trust me. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in me. And when you do that, you're free from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. And at the second judgment, Christ no longer sees your works. He no longer sees your rebellion. He sees instead the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus conquered, and we have the victory in Jesus. So the one who conquers is a reference to anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus. We conquer because he conquered. And when we do that, we will not be hurt by the second death. This was meaningful for the church in Smyrna because they are being threatened with death. So they need that encouragement that though their flesh may die now, it will live forever in Christ. As humans, we tend to be short-sighted. Even if we're thinking about the long game, right? Because when I think about the long game and I think about the end of my life, that, you know, maybe, maybe 40 years from now, Jen says 50, that's short-sighted when it comes to eternity. As Christians, we shouldn't be short-sighted, but we should see the long game. The church at Smyrna encourages us, this letter encourages us to think about eternity, to invest in eternity. 
We can invest in our own comfort here and put all our time, treasure, and talent to make sure we have the best life now, according to God's adversary. Or we can invest in the eternal, putting our time, our talent, and our treasure toward the things that will outlast our earthly lives. We can be materially poor, but spiritually rich. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you wrote this letter to the church at Smyrna. Help us to not get caught up in the comforts of the world, but to look at what you've given us and to ask the question, Lord, how would you have me use this? How would you have me glorify you with what you have given me. Help us to not think about the worldly comforts, but what you have waiting for us in eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.